I'm going to invite you to turn your Bible to just a really special passage in the Gospel of John, John chapter 17. It's a passage that at the rate we have been going through the Gospel of John, I've been doing nearly a chapter a week, but I just, I'm not at peace at that pace for John 17. I think that it would be wise to slow down a bit and to look at this more carefully. Recently, I heard of three ministers that were gathering together and they were having this conversation about the most appropriate posture in prayer. And while they were having this conversation, there was an electrician in the house that was taking care of some wiring. One of the ministers got up and says, I, I think the most appropriate posture is to be on your knees because that symbolizes humility. Another said, well, honestly, if you really want to emphasize humility, I think the most appropriate posture is to be prostrate on your face, laying down in absolute humility, crying out to God. The third minister said, Honestly, I think you can just keep it simple. You can just sit with your hands folded, with your eyes closed, and, and God will hear that prayer as well. The electrician overheard this conversation and said, You know, I have found that the most powerful posture of prayer for me is the time that I was hung upside down at a power line, <laughs> praying for my life to be spared. Now, that's the sort of prayer that God answers. Well, today we're going to look at prayer, and not so much the posture of prayer, but we're going to be learning about how Jesus prayed. It's astounding when you look through the Gospels at how often Jesus prayed. Allow me to just cover real quickly the times that Jesus prayed in the Gospels. He prayed at his baptism. He prayed during his preaching tour, before choosing the 12 apostles, before feeding the 5,000, before feeding the 4,000, before Peter's confession of him as the Christ. He prayed at the transfiguration. He prayed for some children to be brought to him. After the return of the 70, he prayed, before giving the Lord's prayer, before raising Lazarus from the dead. As he faced the reality of the cross, he prayed at the Last Supper, he prayed for Peter, he prayed at Gethsemane, he prayed from the cross, he prayed with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he prayed at the Ascension. It's as if Jesus' life and ministry was one continuous prayer. Prayer is communication. Communication from us to God and from God to us. Contained in John chapter 17 is the longest recorded prayer that Jesus had. Now there's something that we have called the Lord's Prayer. And it's recited often. But that's a prayer that Jesus himself could not pray entirely, is it? Do you remember that phrase? Forgive us our trespasses as we have forgive those who trespass against us. He, he could not pray all of that prayer. 
It would be better worded or better titled the disciples' prayer. What we have here in John 17, I think, is the true Lord's Prayer. And the depth of this treasure is so immense that I'd like to just slow down a bit. And this morning is just look at the first five verses. It's an easily divided prayer in the first five verses where Jesus prays for himself. And then in verses, I think, 6 through 19 where Jesus prays for his disciples. And then 20 all the way to the end of 26 is where Jesus prays for, well, us. The believers that will come after the disciples. And contained in the first five verses of John 17, Jesus prays for himself. Would you be interested to know what he prays for? Today, let us look at his example because he's got one prayer request. And my challenge to myself and to you is to kind of hold up his example and say, is this what I pray for? Is this a part of the primary request that I bring to the Father on an ongoing basis? So let's look at these uh, verses together And I'll just read the first five verses, and then we will just unfold them one phrase at a time. It says there in John 17, verse 1, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Father, as we just enter in now to this, this sacred passage, that it is astonishing that we have recorded for us of how you, the first person of the Trinity, receive a prayer from your Son, the second person of the Trinity. And while these words may seem simple, there are depths here that I'm not sure that we'll ever understand this side of eternity. But I pray that you would peel peel back a bit and give us some clear understanding to what mattered to Jesus. And may you do that work in our own heart to pursue your glory as he did. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John Knox, the founder of the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, called his wife, to his side when he was ill and said, Read me that scripture where I first cast my anchor. And she turned to John 17 and began to read it. It is John 17 that is this sacred passage. Now every word of scripture is inspired. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So let's take a look at each word of these five verses. It says there in chapter 17, verse 1, When Jesus 
had spoken these words. Now, what were these words? Well, that was chapter 13 all the way up to here, chapter 17. It's a, it's a, a grouping of teaching called the Upper Room Discord. When he had finished speaking these words, giving an example of how Jesus washed the disciples' feet and called them to fulfill that same example. Those are these words. When Jesus revealed the betrayer, those are these words. In John 14, when he said, do not let your heart be troubled, those are these words. When he told them that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, would come to them, that was a part of these words. When he illustrated the relationship between his own people and himself and the Father, as I am the vine and you are the branches, that is a part of these words. When he warned them that they would weep and lament and that persecution was coming, that was a part of these words. And he concluded these words, By saying in John 16, verse 33, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Having offered these words, we see the next part of verse 1. Here's a posture. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. This is a way of saying, Your sovereign throne is above me. I humble myself To pray to you. Evidently he spoke or prayed out loud. Because his prayer here is recorded. And it says there in verse 17. And he said father. The first word of his prayer is father. There's an instinct within us. That when faced with the crisis. When faced with a monumental event in our life that we return to our comfort, the relationship that we have with family, with, with friends, or primarily here with our Father. So he speaks to them, Father, I'm retreating to you as I'm preparing to take on the cross. I'll be betrayed and arrested in a matter of minutes. So I want to look up to the heavens and I want to just have this ongoing prayer of dependence with you, Father. Often we look at this prayer as a gloomy one. As just minutes away, Jesus will be ushered away and arrested and then crucified. One Bible teacher, Leon Morris, says, we ought not to see this as gloomy. Rather, Jesus is looking forward to the cross. There is a mood of hope and joy not one of despondency. And then he says here, in the next part of verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Now as we've walked through the Gospel of John, there have been other instances where Jesus said, the hour has not yet come, like in John 2 verse 4, when he was at the wedding And his mom asked him to intervene. He says, my hour has not yet come. And John 7, verse 6, he says, my time has not yet come. And John 7, verse 30, his hour had not yet come. And chapter 8, verse 20, no one arrested him 
because his hour had not yet come. But now, here in John 17, the timing for what Jesus had come to earth for was right. His hour had come. And now we see Jesus pray for himself in these five verses. I wonder what I would pray for if I knew that just in a matter of minutes, I'm going to be hung on a cross. I'm going to be wrongly accused. I think I might pray to say, can I get out of this in some way? Or if I, if I have to go, can you look after my family? Can you look after my affairs and know that everyone that I'm leaving behind is taken care of? Well, we see in this passage here that there's just one prayer request that he has. And here it is. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you. And that's what it says there in the second half of verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Here's my prayer request. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. To use Paul's words in Philippians 2, what Jesus is saying is, I've emptied myself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. I've humbled myself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, Father, will you exalt me and allow people to understand why I have come? So when he says glorify me, what he means by that is as you lift me up, God, you will actually be glorified. To say it another way, when we look to the cross, we will understand God better and worship Him fuller. We see in the Scriptures that God makes His glory made known through creation. While we were there in Senegal, I think we saw clouds like one day. And uh, we drove to church today, and I looked at the temperature, and it was 8 degrees. And so I quickly, what's the, what's the temperature there in Senegal? 86 degrees. It was like a, a magnificent change. But in the evening, as the sun went down, without any light interference at all, you look up at the stars, and they are just so bright, unusually bright. But the Bible says that the Heavens declare the glory of God. And so there is something to be known of God by just His creation. And Hebrews 1 verse 3 tells us that that Jesus is the exact imprint of God. That if we really want to know God, we look to Jesus. And that's certainly a clearer view. But if we really want to gain a crisp understanding of who God is and His attributes... We look to the cross. God's attributes come into clear focus when we look through the cross. It's so there, just minutes away from Jesus being betrayed and arrested, here is his one prayer. God, would you allow me to be glorified in order that people could see 
who you are more clearly follow you and worship you. Through the cross, we understand God's holiness, that God detests sin, that so much that he devised a bloody plan to restore relationship with sinful men and women. Through the cross, we understand the attribute of God's justice, that God can remain just and is still able to forgive sin by sending his own son to die in our place. It's through the cross that we can understand that God is eternal. That from the very beginning, before the world was even created, that God had a plan that he would send his own son to die for the sins of men and women. We see that God is all-knowing. And that he knows who will seek forgiveness from him and then who will remain in their sin. And through the cross, we get a clear picture of God's love, of the sacrifice of him sending his own son to die on our behalf. We understand what grace is when it says that God is gracious, that he is so kind that he gives us what we do not deserve. Jesus' one request was the Father would be glorified in his life and death. In the most unjust, corrupt moment in history, God, would you be glorified? God, be on full display in my life that people would understand you better, that in turn they will worship you. I don't know what your prayer life is like, but if this is Jesus's one request, I'm challenged by it. I think there's ways that we can learn from just learning principles of prayer, but I don't know about you. I seem to learn a lot better by following someone's example. And so when it comes to a home repair, it's very difficult for me to read a manual of five different steps to fix this faucet. But if I watch a YouTube video on it, within a matter of minutes, I think I can figure it out. As we were traveling in Senegal and we were going through one checkpoint of, do you need your passport? Do you need your boarding pass? I can't read anything. I can't speak their language. So I just follow the person who was in front of me. Follow their example. Do you need a passport? Do you need a boarding pass here? And what we have here in the first five verses is Jesus' example of prayer. He's about ready to endure the most heinous event in human history. And what's on his mind? The glory of God. I want people to know you. So whatever happens in the next couple of days here, this is my prayer. That God, you'd be on full display in my life and death and resurrection. So I'd ask you, I'd ask myself, is that true of us? Then Jesus backs up this request with a couple of different reasons. Here's why you should answer that prayer. And so it's, it's, a, it's a prayer of which he has thought through. God, this is, this is the support I'm providing that while I think it's a good idea for you to answer this prayer. Here's the first one. Because I've given eternal life to those you gave to me. Look what it says in verses 2 and 3. Since, that's my prayer request, is that you glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh 
to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, that may seem kind of deep, but the Father has given me some people that are going to be followers, and I'm giving them back. Look what it says there again in verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. I'm offering eternal life to these people. These are the people, God, that you have given to me. I don't know how much of you struggle with identity problems, but verse 2 could be very helpful to you. What this is saying is that the believers in this room that by the grace of God have repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus, well, they're a gift that God has given to Jesus. I don't know if, when's the last time, if ever you have thought of yourself as a gift, but that's what we see here in verse 2, that God identifies you as a gift to the Son. And what has the Son done? He has granted eternal life to you. Now, what is eternal life? Look at verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The two words eternal life here are not so much a reference to how long someone lives, because all of us will live somewhere, whether with God or away from God, either in heaven or hell. The words eternal life here, not so much quantity of life, but quality of life. The word know here in verse 3 carries with it at least three different meanings. The first is that of like objective truth. If we want to know God, we need to know facts about God. We need to know his attributes as revealed in the scriptures. The second meaning of this word know is relational. It is to have an ongoing relationship with this God that starts on this earth, but will last for eternity in his presence. That's eternal life. And the third thing we see about this word no, it's not only facts, it's not only relational, but it's also ongoing. Loved ones, I hope that if you are a believer, that you have a greater understanding of who God is in January of 23 than you did in January of 22. This relationship that we are to have with God is to be ongoing and increasing in knowledge and experience. So here's my prayer, God, that you would be glorified. And here's the reason why, because, well, I've, I've given eternal life to those you gave to me. And then, Father, let me give you a second reason while I want you to answer my prayer And that is, I've finished the work you've had for me. Look what it says there in verse 4 and 5. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What an amazing statement that Jesus says there in verse 4. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
He stands at the end of his life here on earth, about ready to take on the cross and an empty tomb and to ascend back to the heavens. And he can say with complete confidence, Father, you have a task for me that I've been assigned to, and I'm here to tell you that I have completed it. And I'm about ready to finish it off by taking the cross, being raised to life, and descending back to you. How many of us could say, I'm accomplishing the task that God has for me, or I know the task that God has for me. This is what Jesus had said. And then if there were ever any doubt at all that Jesus is eternal, look at what it says there at the last part of verse 5. He says, glorify me in your own presence with the glory, listen, that I had with you before the world existed. I was with you before this world came, and I'm going to be with you again. What you have here, I think, in verse 5 is like, man, I can't wait to get home. I can't wait to be with you again, Father. While I'm here on this earth... Would you take my life and take my death and would you glorify that people would understand who you are better, that they might worship you more? And then I am, I am so looking forward to seeing you again and being in your presence just like I was before Christmas. That's what we see here in verse 5. So there's my prayer request. I want to glorify you. There are the reasons that I I want to offer to you, Father. And we're left with this wonderful example. And I, I express to you in these first five verses that those are the things that it says but I think there's so much depth to it that I'm not sure that I've even come close to mining it. I took some comfort in reading a quote by James Montgomery Boyce, a pastor, when he said, This prayer contains the simplest of sentences, though the ideas are profound. It is proof that the difficulty we have in understanding God's truth is not in the complexity of the truth itself or in the language with which it is conveyed But in our ignorance, sin, and spiritual laziness. Here's what I'd like us to do now as we just consider this passage in these five verses. How is your prayer life? Are you faced with a monumental decision? Are you faced with small decisions? What we see in Jesus' example throughout the gospel is that there is this ongoing relationship, ongoing communication with his Father. And yet there certainly were times where he just carved out and just had intentional communion with the Father. Are you and I doing that? And what is the number one prayer request on your list? I think what we see here from this passage is that it was God's glory, that God would be known. God, 
would you take my life and whatever hardships that I might be in right now, whatever resources that you have given to me, whatever time I have remaining on this earth, and would you use it for your glory? If that was Jesus' one prayer request, then I think that ought to be our number one prayer request as well. So to make it a little more practical, can I just challenge you with this prayer for the week? It's written there in your outline. God, please be displayed in my life so clearly this week that others will want to know and worship you. So as an application today, I just want to provide a little time for you to begin that prayer. Looking at Jesus' example, would you just take a few moments that you have as the music team comes? And by the grace of God, may we apply Jesus' example. Now, it's possible today that the one way that you would glorify God is not to reject what Jesus has done for you. Jesus was sent here to die for your sins. Imagine shunning that. Say, I don't need that. My life is going on the course that I would prefer, and I don't need this interruption in my life. Well, to glorify God would be to say, I want to humble myself and to receive the gift that has been provided for me through Christ. Not only do I want to be forgiven, but I want him to be king of everything in my life. God, I know what it's like to live for my own glory. It is empty and it is vain and it is frustrating. Today I want to turn it around and I want to say I want to live for your glory. So, loved ones, can we put that? Is it possible to have that prayer back up there? Why don't we just take a few moments and prayer something like that. God, help me to live for your glory. This week, let me just focus on that. If I live that out this week, it would be easier to live it out the next week and the week that follows. Let's just enter into an intentional time of prayer to say, I want to live for your glory. Father, we thank you for this prayer that it seems so simple, but it is challenging when we hold it up and we compare our lives to it. Often we're fighting and scratching and clawing to to get our own thing and build our own little kingdoms. But this isn't what we see in Christ. We see one that is willing to literally lay his life down for your glory. May we look to our comforts. May we look to our dreams, things that we would want, and say, They're all on the chopping block. None of these things matter. What we want is what you want of our lives. We want to pursue your glory. We want your name and the work of Christ to be proclaimed all over Green Bay and Brown County and around the world. Lord, may we have this heart, the heart of Christ. May it be evident in us that we are looking not to defend our own reputation, 
but God's reputation, your reputation, and your name. And, and we think of that even within the church. May we, may we fight to preserve the, the purity of the church because your reputation is attached to this. Oh, Lord, may we, may we fight, may we cry out, may we live for your glory in our families, in our marriages. When no one is watching, may we say it, we want you to be known all around. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.